I think it's fair to say, both biblically and experientially, that sin is slavery. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he was talking to religious people, and he said, uh, he said, he who has committed sin is a slave to sin. Anybody here ever sinned in your life? Ever? Just a few of you. Okay. Well, if you've ever sinned, according to Jesus, you're a slave to sin. He didn't say he who continues to sin is a slave to sin. He says both in English and in the original in Greek, it's phrased as he who has sinned, just period, is a slave to sin. And what Jesus was wanting to have these religious people recognize that he was talking to was a reality that all of us are born slaves. We're born slaves to our sin. doesn't mean that we're all equally sinful in the sense that we all do the same sins. doesn't mean that every sin is equally sinful in the eyes of God. But it does mean that all of us have a nature that is bent toward sin, and we're a slave to that nature. And I think experientially it, it pans out. All of us know the slavery, the bondage of being in sin. Many of us here know what it's like to be in the bondage to an addiction. Many of us know what it's like to be in bondage to a bad relationship, someone who treats us wrong. We, we, we can understand experientially what he means by feeling bound up, by being a slave to something. Yet in the same context in John chapter 8, Jesus said, but you shall know the truth and what will happen? Finish the sentence. The truth will set you free. When Jesus said that, he, he wasn't just acknowledging the fact that, yeah, you're a slave to sin. That's the bad news. He was saying, here's the good news. The good news is the truth is knowable. You shall know the truth. It's definable, and it's liberating. It'll set you free. Now, we've seen all throughout the book of Galatians, this letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in an area called Galatia, which would be modern-day Turkey, that when he wrote this, he wrote to people who had received the gospel. They had been set free by the truth of who Jesus is and what he did for them on the cross. So the person and the work of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the sending of his spirit. Paul writes to people, to believers, that he personally got to share Jesus with and he personally got to watch Jesus begin to change their lives. He talks about this. He talks about this reality in, in, in their relationship together. We read this earlier where he says, you know, what was the blessing that you enjoyed? And he talks about this, this sickness that he had was probably affected his eyes. He says, you would even give your, pluck out your eyes and give them to me. And he, and he talked about this reality. He saw the evidence of God's grace working in their life. He saw that they were changed by the gospel and wanted to love Paul because of the gospel. They, they understood. They were, they were beginning to see this love that Jesus has demonstrated and given to us through his death and resurrection. And so Paul, after he preaches the gospel to all these different areas in this area called Galatia, all these different towns in this area called Galatia, and he leaves, these different churches have been planted. There was another group of people that came behind him. They came after Paul, and we, we refer to them as the Judaizers. We call them the Judaizers because what they were doing is they were coming to these Christians and they were saying, listen, these, these Christians who weren't Jews, they were, Israel, they were, uh, they were pagans, they were Gentiles, and, and they, they, they had come to faith in Christ, believing he was the Messiah, believing he was their Savior, but these Jews came and said, listen, you know, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but it's not quite good enough. What needs to happen is you need to believe in Jesus and you need to be circumcised. 
You need to have that outward symbol of a covenant with God that God made with Abraham. You need to be circumcised, which is obviously really bad news if you're an adult male. And so he says, this is what has to happen. And you also have to keep the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law of Moses if you want to be a Christian. And so it was Jesus plus the religion of the Jews. You have to have that if you're actually going to be right with God. And they were coming alongside and doing this. And so Paul, when he writes this letter, he's, he spent the first four chapters trying to exhort these guys, don't you get it? That's not the gospel. What they're preaching is another gospel. It's a false gospel. That's not the gospel that I preached to you at the first. And if anybody comes and preaches you, to you a different gospel than what we preach to you, even if I come and preach a different gospel to, than what we preach to you in the beginning, let them be a curse. Let them be damned. Let them be anathema. And, and he explains to them, no, listen, you're not made right with God. You're not justified before God because you do these good works, because you keep the law or you're circumcised. You're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and he's making this, trying to make this point as clear as he possibly can. Don't you see that what they're bringing to you is bondage? What Jesus bring to you was the truth that set you free. And he's just and he's just been sort of wanting to get this idea just sort of screwed into their heads so it doesn't come out. And then after spending these four chapters making this very, very clear, both using the Old Testament Scripture, using their experience, his experience, and just the reality of, of what the Gospel is, he makes this statement in, in chapter 1 of verse 5. He says, Stand fast, therefore. Stay there. If you've been set free by the gospel, if you've realized what Christ has done for you is enough, if you know you've been justified by faith alone, stand fast. Stay in that place. Now what we're talking about as we've gone through the book of Galatians is, of course, how in Paul dealing with these, these, this bad teaching that had crept into the churches in Galatia, that, it, that in dealing with those, those bad teachings, he's actually shown us a very good thing. He's shown us what it actually means to be a gospel-centered church. And this is hopefully what our prayer is. It's hopefully what our desire is. Our desire is to be a gospel-centered church. And so today we're going to talk about the gospel and liberty. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered church when it comes to the liberty that we've been given in Christ? When Paul says stand fast in liberty, what does that mean? How do we stand fast? We, we, okay, we've been, we've been set free from judgment. We're no longer under the judgment of God. We fear no judgment of God because we know we've been set free. Not that we don't think we're accountable to God. We know we're accountable to God, but we know we're not going to be condemned eternally because we've been set free because of the cross. We know we don't have to be slaves to sin because we've been set free because of the cross. So how do we walk in that? What is that supposed to look like? And so he stands with these, starts with these words. He says, stand fast, therefore, notice, in the liberty, and then he reminds them again, by which Christ has made us free. Notice past tense. It's already happened. Christ has made us free. Paul wants to say before he goes any further in this next section, he wants the, the Galatians to understand it's the gospel and the gospel alone that provides our liberty. We're not free because we set ourselves free. We're free because Jesus sets us free. He's the one who liberates us. He's the one who delivers us. And he says, listen, I'm not, Paul saying, would say to these guys, I'm not telling you to somehow work hard to keep that liberty. 
I'm not trying to tell you to somehow work hard to produce that liberty. I'm telling you to stand fast. Stay put in the liberty that Christ already provided for you. Now, the Bible is very clear, guys. It is only Jesus that sets us free. It's only him who does this. In our culture, we struggle with this idea of freedom. I think as Westerners, we tend to look at freedom as being without any kind of constraint or restraint. We, we look at freedom as the absent of, absence of something else controlling us. If we can have no constraints, nothing holding us back, then we're free. And so anytime anybody says, you know, I don't think that should, that's right, I don't think you should do that, we think, hey, back off, it's, I'm free. Come on now. I, I get to make my own decisions. It's my life. I'm free. And we, we kind of want to defend ourselves against any sort of claim that this is not appropriate, that's not right. And so we see freedom that way as Westerners. We see freedom as, as the absence of restraint. But it's not really, it's not really uh, uh, true. It's not even what we experience uh, in our lives. It's not what we see anywhere in human experience. There, there, every time we talk about freedom, we're really talking about restraining, being restrained in one area that we might be free in another. Let me give you a couple examples. We want the freedom that comes from good health, don't we? And if we have any wisdom whatsoever, we know, then that means what we have to do is we have to restrain ourselves and stay away from the dinner table. <laughs> we can't just kind of dwell in front of the refrigerator as long as we want to, you know? So we restrain ourselves, though we're free to eat. We, we have maybe enough food in our house to eat. We would restrain ourselves from that because we want instead the freedom of good health. We don't want to overeat. Maybe we have a talent. Some of you guys are amazingly gifted at music. And you have a talent. And you might think, I want to develop that talent. So what do you do? You restrain yourself. You take your free time and you focus on and you practice on, even sometimes to the point of bloody fingers if you're playing guitar, you know, or sore arms if you're playing drums, or, or sore head if you're playing piano, <laughs> just to concentrate so much. You, you restrain yourself so you might have the freedom to use your talent as best as possible. So when we talk about freedom, we're not talking about complete, the complete absence of restraint. We're not talking about getting to do whatever we want. We're talking about late restraining ourselves in one area, or being restrained, I should say, in one area, that we might be free somewhere else. Now, what, what I want you guys to do is turn with me to Philippians, that's not it, <laughs> to Philippians chapter 2. It's just a couple books over, a couple pages over from Galatians. You've got Galatians, Colossians, and then Philippians. I'm sorry, Galatians, Ephesians and Philippians, excuse me. Philippians chapter 2. It's important for us to see that the freedom we have is what Christ has provided and Christ himself exemplified how freedom comes by providing it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Being in the form of God, did not consider it e uh, robbery to be equal with God. In other words, what Paul's saying there is, it, it, Paul's saying there basically that, that Jesus is God the Son. He is, is deity as much as God the Father is deity, or God the Spirit is deity. He didn't consider it to be uh, robbery to be equal with God, but listen, made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
You may have a footnote in your Bible that says something along the lines that he emptied himself. And, and that's a, it's a good footnote because that's, a, that's kind of the idea that Paul's bringing there. It's this idea that God the Son, he emptied himself or he laid aside the free exercise of his deity. Theologians call it the kenosis theory. It's this idea that, that he laid aside the free exercise of his deity. He gave up the freedom to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted as the sovereign God and became a man. And not just any man. He says he became, he came in the form of a bondservant taking the likeness of man. And it says, and being found in the appearance of man, verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's he praying to the Father? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. But then what does he pray? Three times. But not my will, but yours be done. Father, I lay aside the free exercise of not wanting to experience your judgment on the cross, of not wanting to experience your own wrath. I lay aside my right to not experience that for the sake of setting these other people free. You see. Now, going back to Galatians. What Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 5, he's saying, listen, you need to stand fast in this freedom by which Christ has made you free. You need to, to know that you have this position of righteousness before God. You have the standing before God that's been provided for you because Christ, in a sense, gave up His freedom as God the Son and died in your place. He gave up, He, he said no to, to what maybe would have been best for Him, so to speak. And this, this mystery of the Trinity that's hard for us to get our head around, this reality that God in three persons has always existed, and within those three persons they've always had perfect fellowship, He put that aside for a season. He gave up that perfect fellowship for that three hours on the cross so that you and I could be brought into perfect fellowship with God for eternity. He laid aside His freedom for the sake of others' freedom. Well, that's important. It's important, one, because we need to recognize that's what paid the price for our freedom. That's, where we, that's why we are free, guys. We're not free because a, a king or a, a, a parliament says, well, you're free in this area. Men don't give men freedom. God gives men freedom. God's the one who says, you're free. You're free. And the freedom that God offers us in Christ can't be taken away from us, even if we're put in a place of a physical prison. Guys, don't you know this is why Paul, when the Apostle Paul was doing his missionary work with his buddy Silas, and they get arrested and they get thrown into prison in Philippi, that when they're in prison, what are they doing? Oh God, set us free, set us free. No, they're praising God. They're singing songs to God, you know. They're, they're, they're praising God in the middle of this, this dark, filthy, rat-infested prison. Why? Because no matter who chained them up and for how long they were chained up, no one could take away their freedom that they had in Christ. They knew they were free. You see, guys, this is where everything else begins. It begins with us understanding what we've been given, what's been given up for us to be given, and what it is that we actually have in the giving, in the receiving of that. 
The Bible says this in, in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. You've been given this right through Christ, this right to be a child of God. You've been given that, this freedom to call the creator of the universe Abba, Father. You've been given this. You've been given this identity. You've been given this privilege to access the very throne of grace, to find grace to help in a time of need, to obtain the mercy that you need for forgiveness. You've been given that. You have that freedom. How many of you guys have a key to my house? Any of you guys here have a key to my house? Frankie, I knew it. (laughs) No, none of you have a key to my house. Because though we have a relationship, and though to varying degrees with different of you, obviously I know some of you guys better than others, you know, none of us have that kind of relationship where I feel like, hey, here's a key to my house. Just take it. There's a restriction to our relationship. Do you realize that Jesus said to Peter, not just speaking to Peter specifically, but what he'd give to his entire church, all those that were his, he says, I give you the key to the kingdom. Freedom to enter in and dwell. That's what he's been giving you. And Paul's saying, listen, you've been given this in Christ. Stand in it. Stay in it. It's only Jesus that makes us free. And that's why he has to say in the latter part of verse 1, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. What's he mean a yoke of bondage? Well, he's not talking about egg yolk, just in case you're wondering, okay? When he's talking about a yoke, he is talking about that, that sort of physical wooden contraption that linked together two oxen or two horses. You've seen these, right? They link them together, and what happens is they pull the plow together. And usually when they would link these these uh, two oxen together would be a stronger oxen and a slightly weaker oxen, just slightly weaker, and a younger oxen. And that younger oxen, though he was strong, was usually uh, not too disciplined. And so lining up with that older, more seasoned, experienced oxen, as they plowed it together, the younger one would learn how to, to do what the older one was doing. Now, when he talks about a yoke, though, when you see the, the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, talking about a yoke, it's, it's, not just re- it's not referring to literally oxen. It's referring to, um, it's referring to something that's rabbinic or has to do with uh, someone coming underneath a rabbi to be a disciple. When a rabbi, see, you might not know this, but disciples didn't choose rabbis. Rabbis chose disciples. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. In other words, you couldn't think, man, I want to know about God. Uh, rabbi Joe, uh, would you teach me more about God? Now, he might say, yes, come to synagogue and I'll be teaching everybody. And he might say, that, yes. But if you wanted to be individually discipled under Rabbi Joe, Rabbi Joe had to come and say, come. And he would say, come and take my yoke upon you. Now, the Jews looked at the, the, the best yoke that someone could take on was not necessarily a specific rabbi that you could be under, but the yoke of the law. The law itself would be the yoke. If you could just tie yourself to the law of God, yoke yourself to the law of God, Yeah, that's where it's at. That's where there's freedom. I'm tied to the yoke of God. But Paul's saying, listen, to these people who are thinking, yeah, I need to be tied to the yoke of God. I need to be tied to the law of God. He's saying, listen, that is a yoke of bondage. Now, check this out. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11, some really well-known verses. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the reason I underscored all those personal pronouns was because Jesus wasn't saying to these guys, hey, take the yoke of the law or take the yoke of my teaching. If you'll just learn how I do things or learn what my doctrine is or learn what my views of God are, ah, then maybe set free. He said, come to me. Come to me. See, the rabbis, when they would when you would say, okay, when he'd say, take my yoke upon you, you would just basically, you would not come alongside a rabbi and have this really, that kind of a close relationship necessarily. You would simply learn his perspectives on the law. But what Jesus is saying when he says this, when he says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, he's not just saying, learn my perspectives. He's saying, come relate with me. Come join with me. Come be with me. He's talking about relationship. He's saying, come be in relationship with me. I've said it before, but it bears repeating because we need to get it through our heads, guys. Jesus is not calling us to great faith. He's not. You might be here this morning struggling. You know, I don't know if I really believe everything. I'm, I, I struggle with doubt. I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about that. I just don't feel like I have great faith. I wish I had more faith, but I don't feel like I have great faith. Listen, Jesus isn't demanding of you great faith. He says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, a little mustard seed, you'll move mountains. He's not demanding great faith, but listen, he is demanding exclusive faith. He says, there's no other yoke for you to take on you. Do not take any other yoke on you. Take on my yoke, he says. Learn of me. He says, it's my yoke that's easy. It's my burden that's light. You know what's great with being yoked with Jesus is that he carries all the weight. <laughs> we just have to walk with him. Interesting about Oxen, when they were yoked together, the only danger in yoking two oxen together, uh, an older, more mature oxen with a younger, stronger oxen, is sometimes the younger oxen would be so obstinate, so stubborn, he would fight against the older oxen, and it would almost always happen. The younger one would break its neck. It would die. Now, it's important to understand that because Paul here in verses 2 to 5 gives us some really sober warnings about what happens if we forfeit this liberty. If we say, I don't want to stand in that, that's, that's maybe a nice place to start, but I can't stand there. I've got to add to that liberty in Christ. I've got to add to that yoke of Christ, the yoke of the law. Paul says there's consequences for that. Listen to this, guys. Very sober. He says in verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Wow. He's basically saying this. You receive no benefit from the cross of Jesus if you also take on with you the yoke of the law. Why? Why is it that Jesus is so exclusive about this? And you see this, guys, all throughout the Scripture, don't you? We saw this in the book of Luke a lot, didn't we? Remember Luke 14 when Jesus talked about, you know, you have to, you know, no one who does not hate their, their mother, father, sister, brother, cousin, uncle, donkey, whoever, is not worthy to follow me. And, and, you, and you see it and you think, gosh, that seems a bit almost egomaniac. You know, what's the deal with that? And we, we talked about this reality that Jesus is, is exclaiming, or, or I'm sorry, he's demanding exclusive worship. He demands that we worship him as the revelation of God, that he is God the Son. 
God says in his law, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus fulfills that law by showing us exactly who God is. And, and there's this reality, guys, that when we say, okay, yeah, Jesus, I'll take your yoke upon me, but I also want to take the yoke of the law because I just want to make sure I cover all my bases, that Jesus is saying, don't you realize? Paul, through the Spirit, is saying, don't you realize? When you do that, you are basically saying what Jesus did wasn't enough. And then he says this in verse in verse. Uh, Three, he says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, Paul says, listen, it's not just the fact that you have no benefit. You also get no rest. Any one of us, guys, isn't this our experience? When we try to relate to God by the law, we try to relate to God by what we do or don't, haven't we experienced the heaviness of that? Oh, it's just bondage. It's horrible. Where you're just always afraid, am I really still a Christian? Does God really still love me? Have I done enough? Am I going to hell now? Have I lost my salvation? We're so worried that we're not right with God. There's no rest. Because we tell ourselves, okay, okay, it's believing in Jesus, yeah, but also it's making sure I have my devotions every day. It's making sure I tithe. It's making sure I show up to church and serve. It's all these things. And what happens? We experience no rest. But what did Jesus say? You'll find rest for your souls when you take my yoke upon you. Look what else he says in verse 4. He says, if you do this, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. This is one of the heaviest phrases, I think, in all the New Testament. Because it's obvious in the context from what he sees in verse 5 what he means. Look at verse 5 again. He says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now some of you guys who have been with us through, the, through Galatians, you might think, wait a second, John, didn't you tell us that we already possess this righteousness by faith, that we've already been declared righteous? Well, we do, yeah. And what Paul's talking about here when he says a hope, it's not like, gee, I wish this happens. It's an expectation. It's a cheerful expectation, literally in the Greek. He says, we, we have this hope. We expect that when we see God face to face, God's going to say, you're right with me. Well, why would we expect that? It's, it's arrogant of us to think that we're good enough for God to say, yeah, you're good enough. It's pretty arrogant of us. Now, we all say that, don't we? The book of Proverbs says, every man will just declare his own goodness. You know, we say that. I'm good enough for God. I mean, God should be happy with what I do. I'm a pretty good guy. I met a man at a malt shop once, at an ice cream shop when I was in Bible college, and we were trying to share Jesus with him a little bit, as, as zealous Bible college students do, and he says, I don't believe all that expletive, and, and, and we said, all right, well, what do you believe? He goes, you know, I believe that I'm a good person. I believe I, I, I've done good, I've done well, and if there, is, if there is a God, then he'll let me into heaven. I'm like, okay, well, no, we said, okay, and we were going to ask him, why do you think that? And he says, you know what the first thing is gonna, I'm going to do when I get to heaven? And we thought, oh, that's curious. Okay, what? He says, I'm going to punch God in the face. Kind of like step back, you know, waiting for lightning to strike or something. Whoa. <laughs> he says, for messing up this world. See, this guy didn't just think he was good enough for God. He actually thought he was better than God. You see, when... The rich young ruler came to Jesus and, and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know the law, you know, you know the commands. And he, he says, what, what are they? Oh, I've kept these, you know, you know the commands. He says, you know, you honor your parents and don't steal and don't lie. And you know the commandments. Oh, I've kept those from my youth. Oh, really? There's one thing you still lack. It's interesting because 
when this man came to Jesus, the first thing he said was, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? What is your definition of good? I'm a good person. Well, what's your definition of good? Guys, in all reality, Hitler thought he was a good person. I'm a good person. What's your definition of good? Because our definition needs to be God. God is good. He's a definition of good. Now, what he's saying is this. We have no hope, no expectation of being declared righteous. You know why? Because when we say, okay, I'll take the yoke of liberty that I have in Jesus, I'll take his yoke, and I'll take the yoke of the law on me, we're basically saying this. The gift of your righteousness, Jesus, your righteousness isn't good enough. Check this out. Paul says this in Romans 10.3, speaking of the Jews in general, of Israel in general, but it applies to, to anybody who wants to be justified by their own righteousness. He says, in seeking to establish their own righteousness, what do they do? They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. I think sometimes, guys, we get this view of, of, of the God of the Bible who says, you need to do all these things or you won't be right with me. Whereas actually what the God of the Bible says is these are all the right things to do. And then we see in the New Testament, God says, listen, it's not about you doing the things to be right with me. It's about you submitting to the free gift of righteousness that I offer you in Christ. And you know why we don't want to do that? Do you know why we resist that, guys, if we're honest with ourselves? We resist that because we want to establish our own righteousness. We want to look in the mirror and look at people in the eye and say, I'm a good person. I do good. Hey, you might do things that are good. I'm not denying that. I'm not, you're, you're probably a much better person than I am. But how do you define good? Because the good that God requires of us is the good that equals His goodness. And He wants to offer that position, that righteous position, that righteousness in Christ. And when we say, okay, I know that I have to believe in Jesus, but I also have to keep the law. I also have to keep these things. You know what we're saying? We're saying that freedom that you've offered to us isn't enough. We're saying the gospel's not enough. You see, this is why it's so important that we recognize what he means by standing fast. God call, is calling us by His Holy Spirit to stand fast, to stay in this place of knowing I am right with God because of Jesus, full stop. No other reason. Can't add to that. Can't take from it. I'm right with God because of Jesus. This is where we have to start. This is where it has to start. Uh, in the book of Acts, Acts 15, when they were dealing with this issue, should the Gentiles keep the law of God? Peter said this. He said, now therefore, why do you test God? This is talking to these Judaizers. He says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on their neck of the, of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Do you really think you're going to experience freedom by doing all these good deeds? Have any of us here ever experienced freedom through religion? No. You know what we experience? Bondage. If we really are trying to relate to God, if we're really trying to approach God, and, and, and we try to do that by keeping a standard, what do we experience? Freedom? No. We experience bondage. 
We, we, we have that burden of, man, I'm not good enough. Nothing I do is good enough. We're angry with people all the time. We want to control circumstances all the time. Why? Because we're still a slave to our sin. Because it's only the gospel that can set us free from that. It's only the gospel that can, can, can give us righteousness. It's only the gospel that can give us rest. And Paul's saying, listen, if you want to know how to walk in liberty, you've got to learn how to stand in liberty. You've got to learn how to know that you're free in this. Guys, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, John, you've been saying this now for about two months, screwing in our heads every single Sunday, but are you getting it yet? Are you standing in it yet? Because to be honest with you guys, what I experience when we, when we have a lot of conversation is, is not a freedom, but a struggle. And, I, and I'll say, I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. I know I need to say, Lord, I want to stand fast in this. I want to really give you the faith you trust you're worthy of. You're worthy of my complete trust. And say, yeah, Lord, what you provided in Christ, it's enough. It's enough for me to be free. Now, here's the deal. Freedom... Always brings with it responsibility. Look at verse 7. Paul says to these guys, Look, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's interesting. He, he uses this sort of sports analogy. Paul used to, used to always use a lot of sports analogies, which I like because I'm a guy. And he uses this analogy of running. And, and, and what he's doing, he's saying, look, you used to run well, and when he says who hindered you, the word for hindered, it literally means to cut somebody off. It's a, it's a, it's a word picture of a, of a foot race. And it means to like give a hip check. Do you guys call it that here? Like when you're playing football and you, you kind of try to knock someone aside with your hip, I don't know what they call that, but a hip check. If, you, if you're playing um, different sports in the States, what you do is if you're trying to battle for a position to run to get a ball or something and you're not allowed to like take the guy and throw him down because some sports you can. Those are my favorite sports. But the kind, of, the kind of sports where you can't just take the guy and throw him down, what you can try to do is be sliding, bam, give him a little hip check and knock him down. Cross-country runners, they learn to do that. They learn to run, and you're not supposed to contact each other. But you, you know you want to get a position, you want to knock the other guy down, so you run, bang, and the guy falls down. It's called a hip check. Well, that's actually what this means. He's saying, you were running well, who gave you the hip check? Now, he's not asking because I don't really know who was it again. He's not asking to know their name. He's saying, think about who it was who caused you to do this. Think about who stumbled you, who pushed you down with a hip check. And he says in verse 8, he says, this persuasion, this sort of, hey, you've got to take the yoke of the law on you, doesn't come from him who calls you. It's not Jesus who's saying, here's the persuasion I want you to have. Now check this out, guys. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23. It's really important. Jesus said, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they teach you the law of God. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. In other words, if they're telling you this is what God says, you know what, that's a good thing. Do what God says. He says, but not according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. What is Jesus accusing those guys of, the religious leaders of his day? Hypocrisy. It wasn't just that they were hypocritical because they weren't actually fulfilling these burdens, though, because many of them did. I mean, Paul the Apostle uh, says of himself that before he was a Christian, according to the law, he was blameless. There, nobody could say to him, you've broken that law. Because on an outward sense, he was completely blameless. And so many of the Pharisees were, from an outward sense, completely blameless. But here was their hypocrisy. 
They thought they could do enough to be right with God. They claimed to have done enough to be right with God. And Jesus said, you know, they don't even lift their finger. (laughs) They don't do anything to be right with God. What they do, they do to be impressive to men. That's why they do it. And Jesus is saying, stay away from this. The reason I bring this up is because Paul's saying to these Galatians, listen, it's not Jesus who's telling you, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep the law. Jesus isn't saying that. It's not Jesus saying that. Jesus said to those people who used to say that, they're hypocrites. Obey the laws, they tell you, if they're Moses' law, those are good laws. We'll talk about how that's supposed to work now. But he, he says, but don't, that, that's not me saying you have to obey the law to be right with God. Now listen, he goes on to say this in verse 9, a really well-known phrase in their day, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now what does he mean by that? Remember in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus said this, Jesus began to say to his disciples, first of all, or here's what's preeminent, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven being what? Like yeast. You know why he, he, he calls hypocrisy like yeast? Because it just takes a little bit of it to permeate a lot. The subtle little bit of hypocrisy, the subtle little bit of legalism, the subtle little bit of, I'm going to stand with God by Jesus and by this other thing. Just a little bit begins to permeate everything in your relationship with God and with others. And that's why Jesus says, okay, here's the first importance. Beware of that kind of influence. Now I say all this stuff, guys, because again, Paul's saying, listen, with liberty comes responsibility. And here's your first responsibility. You're responsible to choose good influences on you. We'll see in a minute that Paul's really harsh on the false teachers who who were preaching this rubbish, but he says to the Galatians, man, who's telling you this stuff? It's not Jesus. And what he's doing by, by saying this is saying, listen, do you realize it's your responsibility to recognize where the rubbish comes from? <laughs> hey guys, l- l- let me give you a little bit of advice. Check your resources. Don't say, well, Pastor John said it was okay. It must be true. That's ridiculous. Stupid is as stupid is. It's not the way it works. Go back and check the source. Compare what you've been taught and whatever church you've gone to or ever, whatever books you've read to the source. Paul's saying, hey, Jesus didn't teach that, what those guys are teaching. They are twisting the gospel. They're bringing a false gospel. Guys, we are responsible to know where we get our information from. But then he says this, look at verse 10. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind or you'll have no other opinion. Now he's bringing up this this other issue of responsibility. He says, listen, you're responsible also to think for yourselves. You're responsible to think for yourselves. You you need to know where the resources are, who's actually telling you these things. Just because I say to you, here's what's true, doesn't mean you should believe it. If I ever claim that kind of authority, please kick me out of the church because I don't have that kind of authority. Nobody has that authority. No man on earth has that authority. Jesus only. And so the thing is, don't take my word for it. Check the resource or check the source. Where does that come from? But also, listen, learn to think for yourselves. Learn to use your noggin. I think we live in a generation where we are so intellectually lazy It's pathetic. I mean, guys, the truth is, hardly anybody reads anymore. Not because we're illiterate, we're just illiterate. We'd rather watch it on the video. (laughs) 
Nobody reads anymore. Now, you've heard me say before, you know, if, if you only have an hour or two a week to read, read the Scripture. Don't, don't read other books, necessarily. But I'll tell you what, you need to know the Scripture well enough so that you can read other books and you can see what's actually happening. Edu- be educated, man. Use your brain. Now, it's interesting. When Paul says, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you have no other mind, no other perspective, what he's saying is, I, you know, he's trying to encourage the Galatians. Now, listen, you guys have done something stupid by listening to these guys, but I'm confident that God's going to show you what's true. Now, why would he say that? He says that because of what the Scripture says. Paul would say this in Romans 12, 2. He said, And do not be conformed to this world, but notice, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. You know, sometimes people will tell you, oh, those Christians, those churches, they want to brainwash you. Guess what? It's true. Your brain needs to be washed, and so does mine. Not brainwashing in the sinister sense of, let me tell you what to think, but learning to have our perspective cleansed by the perspective of Jesus. How does Jesus see things? What's God's view of the world that he made? What's God's plan with the world that he made? Seeing things from his perspective. Being renewed by the trans- being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Having the way we think change. That's what's supposed to happen, isn't it? Isn't that the purpose of education? Well, what, what Paul's saying here is, listen, I have all confidence that you're going to get this because I believe Jesus is renewing your mind. Now, you might say to me, okay, wait a second, John. Paul seems to be giving a command in Romans 12 too. He seems to be saying, you need to be transformed the renewing of mind. Is it Jesus renewing our minds or do we renew our own minds? Now, go back to Philippians 2. Keep your place in Galatians. Go back to Philippians 2. This is where we start beginning to really say, how do we walk in this freedom? If the freedom comes through responsibility, we need to know what so- our sources actually say. If freedom comes through responsibility, we need to learn to think for ourselves. What's our part? What's God's part? How does this work? Again, read verse 5, Philippians chapter 2. He says, let this what? Mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, let this mindset be in you. Have the same mindset as Jesus. Now, talking about that humble mindset of a servant, right? Talking about following the footsteps. It says earlier on in the chapter, you know, with a lowliness of mind, esteem others as better than yourself. Value other people's needs as higher than your own. That's the law of love, which we'll talk about in a minute. But notice down to verse 12 of chapter 2 of Philippians, where Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, notice what he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say, work out your brother's salvation for fear and trembling. Work out your wife's salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your kid's salvation with fear and trembling. He says, work out your own. He says, you have a responsibility to know what you believe, why you believe it. You have a responsibility to know how is it that you as an individual are right with your creator. It's your responsibility. But notice what he else says in verse 13. For, for this reason, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do you get that? What Paul is saying is simply this. He's saying, listen, you have a responsibility. This freedom you have in Christ is a responsibility that he's made you. He's actually made you no longer a slave to sin, but free to choose who you're going to serve. You're free now because you have this right relationship with God. 
It's not just a transaction that took place. It's a transformation that took place. You've been born of the Spirit. You've been made free. Because that's true, be transformed by the ruin of your mind. Let your opinions be lined up with Jesus' opinions about things. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you can have all confidence that God's working in you. Guys, listen, you need to understand something. It's so important. If you are here today, it's because God's wanting to work in you. If you've professed to put your faith in Christ, your faith is in what Jesus has done for you on the cross and his resurrection, that that's what makes you right with God. If your faith is there in Christ alone, God is at work in you. And God's saying, now listen, I'm doing this work in you and I want to continue to to do this work in you. You now are responsible to think for yourself. Start thinking through what you believe. Start thinking through what you understand about me. Start studying to show yourself approved. Start being willing to walk and wrestle with me. You see, I'll tell you what, this, when you realize this, guys, when you realize that this freedom comes with responsibility, that you have been set free, and you understand what your responsibility is with that freedom, I'll tell you what, it sets you even more free. Because when I think, okay, my liberty is only based on what I do. I have to pray or I'm not free. I have to pray or I'm not free. You know what I find myself doing? Praying prayers that I think are going to make God happy with me. God, you're so wonderful, and I just want to love everybody, so help me do that. But you know what I'm really feeling sometimes? God, I hate being a Christian sometimes, and these people don't deserve to be loved. You know what frees me up? I don't have to pray, pray, pray prayers to make God happy because God already accepts me in Christ. So you know what I can say to God? Just what I feel. God, I'm frustrated about being a Christian, and it's hard to love these people. And then you know what happens? God the Spirit shows me, yeah, but what was my heart towards you? What did I show you about myself through Jesus? Yeah, you're right, Lord. That's the heart that I want to have. Oh, God, change me. Continue to renew me, transform me by the renewing of my mind. You see, there's a liberty that we have in Christ that sets a foundation for us to grow in that liberty where we can just be completely and utterly honest with God and say, God, do this work in me. Going back to Galatians. Almost done. Now, he says this. He says, I have confidence in you, uh, in the Lord, that you'll have no other opinion. God's doing a good work in you. He says, but he who troubles you shall bear his own judgment, whoever he is. In other words, Paul's not saying, Paul's saying, listen, it's your responsibility to know who your resources are or who the resources of your teachers are. Uh, It's your responsibility to think for yourself, but just know that the guys who are trying to hip check you out of the way, push you away from Jesus, God's gonna deal with them. Guys, don't think that these charlatans on TV that name the name of Jesus, that say they're Christians and just try to rip off money from old ladies, don't think God's going to let them get away with that. He's not. He will judge those people. He will. And to me, that's good news. Not because I want those guys on, a, on TV to be judged. I want them to turn to, to the repentance and really stop doing what they're doing. I really do. But I'm so thankful that my God's not going to let those guys get away with that. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, you're responsible for you. You're not responsible for them. And he says in verse, uh, verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. You know, it was these Judaizers that were wanting to persecute Paul. It was them that wanted to see Paul in jail. It was them that wanted to see Paul stoned to death. These kind of guys. Because Paul preached the cross. He preached the message that was, Christ's death on the cross was enough. 
You can't add to that. He preached that, and he got persecuted for it. And then he says this in verse 12, one of the harshest statements in all of the New Testament. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, some of you guys, if you have the, another version, a couple different versions, say something like this. It's basically he's saying this. I wish those guys would emasculate themselves. Oh, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? He's sort of, he's, he's venting some righteous anger. He's saying if they're so into cutting off the flesh, why don't they just cut off a little bit more and be done with it? And the reason he's saying this, guys, is, is, is not to be vulgar. He's saying this because the pagans, the kind of pagan priests that the Galatians would have been under before they became Christians, one of the things that they would do to show devotion to their gods was to castrate themselves. And Paul's basically saying, he's saying, listen, if these guys are so into thinking, I'm right with God because I've cut off some part of my body, that makes me right with God. He's saying, why don't they go all the way? Because I'm sick of them troubling you guys and always stumbling you guys. Again, guys, God's going to judge these guys. He doesn't hold you accountable to what false teachers teach, but he does hold you accountable to what you learn from people. That freedom that you have in Christ, that free standing, it doesn't come without responsibility. You're free. You don't have to have other people tell you what to do. You don't have to come to me for forgiveness. You go right to God for forgiveness. You don't have to come to me to learn the, to learn the Bible. I'm not the only guy to teach you the Bible. You can come to a variety of different people because it's not my responsibility that you learn. It's your responsibility that you learn. Do you understand? It's not my responsibility that you walk. It's your responsibility that you walk. I'm just responsible to make sure I tell you the truth which is why God says don't let many of you become teachers because you have a stricter judgment. Now, moving on. Verse 13. Here's where we get to the, 90, the, uh, the nuts and bolts. So, how we walk in this? We know we need, to know, we know we need to stay in that place where we recognize the gospel alone provides liberty. We know this liberty comes with responsibility. We need to know, okay, okay, I need to know what I believe and why I believe it. But also, look what he says. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty only... Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. What he means by that is an opportunity to live life on your own strength. For through, but through love, serve one another. And this is the thing about liberty. This is the thing that you know. Here's how you know that Jesus is setting you free, that he has set you free, and he is setting you free. The liberty that Jesus gives you through the gospel always leads to love. It always leads to love. See, guys, the Bible teaches that because he set you free by his cross, you're free to serve others. Do you know that? You're free to serve others for a couple of reasons. One is, you're no longer a slave to serving yourself. Remember what we read way back in chapter 2 of Galatians? I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You, yourself, has been crucified. <coughs> you don't have to live for self anymore. And that's what we do naturally, isn't it? Someone takes a group picture, what do you do? Ooh, how do I look? You immediately look for yourself. This is what we do. We are naturally selfish. That's what the essence of sin is, selfishness. Well, when you've been set free from that selfishness, you know what that means? You can serve others. Now, let me say something about this quickly. It's easier, I've got to say this, in a ministerial context, in a church context, it's easier to get people to serve just by the sake of serving. I, I, it's so true. I can guilt manipulate people way easier than tell them, hey, we need to love each other. When I say, man, come on, serve. There's stuff to do. We've got things we have to accomplish. I start putting out lists for things to do. Man, people start, oh, okay, because they feel bad. 
and they want to start doing something. But you know what happens then when we serve apart from the freedom of gospel love? You know what happens? We get puffed up. Oh, look at me. I'm serving. What's that guy doing? Nothing. I do an important job. He's got that little weenie job. That's not worth nothing. We start getting puffed up with pride. Well, you know what else happens? We get bitter. I'm doing all this stuff. No one else is doing nothing. Come on. We totally lose the whole mindset of a servant. When Jesus served his people, how did he do it? The night he was going to be arrested and crucified, what did he do? He took off his garment, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he took the, he took the lowest job of the lowest servant in a Greek household, in a Roman household, the one who would wash the feet. And he washed the feet of his disciples. They were so shocked by this. Peter's like, ah, no way, you can't wash my feet, Lord. You don't deserve that low position. He says, listen, you let me do this or you have no part in me. And eventually Jesus would say to them, listen, as I've done to you, I've done so to set an example, so do with one another. Jesus was showing, listen, you don't serve people because they deserve it. The apostles know it's not right for you to serve me, God. You can't serve me, Jesus. You serve people because God deserves it. We love, why? Because he first loved us. You see, guys, what did it say back in verse six? It says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Whether you're circumcised or not makes no bit of difference. But what does avail something? Faith working through love. See, guys, you're free to love people in these practical ways, in these sacrificial ways, when you know you're loved. Haven't you experienced that? Remember when you first, if, those of you guys who are not single, uh, remember uh, when you first fell in love? Even if you guys who are single, remember when the first time you ever fell in love? How free you felt? You were nice to everybody. Especially when you knew someone was in love with you. Why? Because you just, it was like, oh, I'm loved. What else do I need? And then next week they're mean to you and you're devastated and that's how relationships go pear shaped. But that's another story. But there's a reality, guys, when you recognize that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, and there's nothing that can compare for you than the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. What happens? You're free to love because you know you are loved. You're free to serve because you know you've been served. The God of the universe served you by becoming a servant and dying on, your, uh, on the cross for your sins. See, this is what we mean when we say liberty always leads to love. When we're freed by Christ then what happens? We're, we're able to love like Christ by the power of His Spirit. John said this, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Check this out. He goes on to say this, and we're almost done. He says in verse 14, for all the love is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice what Paul's doing. These guys, these Galatian believers have had this huge, heavy, yoke put on them, this burden of the law. Keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. And they're bending under it. They're breaking under it because nobody can carry it. And so Paul's saying, don't you know you're free? But he's not saying you're free not to, to ignore what the law says and do what you want to do. You're free to serve other people because that's in serving other people, you can love other people. And in loving people, that's the actual essence of the law. That's what we would call the spirit of the law. Check it out. Paul would put it this way later on in 2 Corinthians. He says, such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers or servants of a new covenant. 
not of the letter. That's the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, you know what happens when we go around trying to get everybody to keep the law? Hey, I'm trying to keep the law. Let me keep the law. Hey, you keep the law too. You know what that does? It kills. It kills relationships. But you know what happens when we love? When we make sure that we don't take something that belongs to somebody else because we love that person. And instead, we do what Jesus did and we give them something. You know what happens when we love that way? Life. Life comes from it. You know what happens when we don't lie to somebody, but we speak the truth to them in love? You know what happens? Life. They're set free. You see, this, is this, this radical thing that happens is when we, we know that we're free to fulfill the spiritual law, you know why? Because we don't have to be a, lo- a slave to the letter of the law. Now, lastly, he says this in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I think the thing that's destroyed more churches is gossip and backbiting. I, I, don't, I really don't think it's, it's been strictly bad doctrine, though obviously if we don't believe the right things, we're not going to do the right things. I don't, I don't think it's strictly uh, you know, a lack of resources. I don't, I don't think it's, um, you know, sins of adultery or, or, or fornication coming in. I don't think it's, 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 it's poor worship styles. I think the thing that kills church fellowships quicker than anything is backbiting, slander, and gossip. We tend to consume one another. We tend to bite and devour one another. We tend to judge one another so quickly. Guys, listen. In case you didn't figure it out yet, that's not love. It's not love. Love believes all things. We give people the benefit of the doubt. We believe all things. You know, guys, the Bible talks about being careful, being aware of our tendency towards evil suspicions. I always go, I don't trust that guy. He's dodgy. I'm not talking about not being discerning. I'm not talking about not being careful. We have a child protection policy to protect our kids from people that are dodgy. We, we, we try to be wise about how we do things to protect, you know, from people who are dodgy. But what I'm saying is that we need to be in a place where we're saying, okay, you know what? What God's called me to do is not, what God set me free for is that I am free from other people. I have no obligation to these people. I'm right with God. I don't need you. I don't trust you anyway. I don't like you anyway. Paul says, be careful because guess what? You're going to be the one who's consumed. He says, no, you've been set free so that you can love. And in loving, here's what happens. When you love people, do you want to consume them? Do you want to take from them? No, you want to give to them. You want to feed them. You want to offer to them. Now, I think most of us are familiar with some of these principles, especially the reality of love. And I'd be willing to bet when we talk about like loving each other this way, being free to serve each other this way, there's a part of it that says, oh, I want that so bad. If only that were really true. If only that could really happen. And we don't believe God for this. And yet, guys, I believe God's calling us to believe him for this. God's calling us to believe him to, for, to, for the ability to walk in this kind of liberty. 
So much so, guys, that I believe the New Testament sets a standard that it's this kind of liberty. It's walking in this kind of liberty where we know we've been freed because of who we are in Christ and because of what Christ has done, that we actually begin to love each other in these practical and sacrificial ways, that this is what God intends to use to start to change the world. That's a heavy statement, isn't it? That's a lofty statement, isn't it? But I believe that, and I believe it's biblical. Check this out. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's, it's a reference in the context. Read the whole context in 1 Peter 2. It's a reference to non-believers, people who foolishly uh, refuse to believe the gospel. He says, here's what you need to do to put them to silence. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Hey, I'm free in Christ. It's okay if I steal from the government. I'm free in Christ. It's okay if I lie. I'm free in Christ. I know God forgives. Sometimes my wife doesn't meet my needs. I've got to go other places. Yeah, I've heard people justify themselves in these things. Hey, I'm free in Christ. God knows we love each other. We're not married yet, but hey, I'm free. No, he says live as free people, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but listen, living as servants of God. And notice the practical exhortations. Honor everybody. That means value people. We should value people solely because they're made in the image of God. Full stop. They're made in the image of God, so we value them. He says, listen, love the brotherhood, which means we have a specific kind of commitment to one another as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. There's a specific commitment that we show to each other. Fear God. We need to have a holy reverence for who uh, holds our life in his hand, for who's provided our salvation, for whom do we give account. We need to have a holy reverence. And notice what he says, honor the emperor. In other words, show reverence for those in governing authorities over you. Is there any relationship that you can think of in your life that wouldn't be covered underneath this thing? What does that mean? It means that Peter is saying, this is the will of God, that you have influence and on your entire sphere of influence, whether it be your neighbors, your church, your relationship with God, your government, you have influence as, listen, you love to the point of service. You know when that happens? It only happens when you know you've been set free. See, guys, a gospel-centered church is this. A gospel-centered church is a church that recognizes we've been set free. And because we stand in that freedom, we're going to, through love, serve one another. We're going to be committed to practical, sacrificial love toward one another. You know why? Because that demonstrates the gospel. Guys, listen, I'm not naive. I know the scriptures. I know that in some ways things are going to get worse before they get better. I know that it's, nothing's going to be changed completely in this world until Jesus comes back. We preach that all the time. But there's a reality, guys, that our faith and our liberty is way too small. God wants us to believe that we are so free that we can serve one another through love. When we just feel selfish, and I, I want to do what I want to do, I don't want to serve anybody else, that we can say, wait a second, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, I've been set free, I can serve somebody else. When we feel like, nah, you know what, I, I don't want to go to church, I'm not going to get anything out of it, we think, wait a second, that's selfish. There might be someone that needs me to listen to them. I need to be there so for their sake as well. I believe the gospel, I've been set free, so I can forget about what I need and just go trust the God and that, that God's going to use me 
with those people tonight. Guys, that's going to change the world. Let's be that kind of church.